Hey, my name is Matt Williams, teaching pastor at Grace Church in Greenville, South Carolina. The videos that you're about to watch are the culmination of a few years of working with our men, uh, helping discern the great challenges that men face in loving their wives and leading their families. We've been looking at the scriptures to see uh, God's wisdom for us and the direction that he has for us, and we're really excited about it, and we hope this uh, becomes a blessing for you. God has given us one relationship on this earth that is supposed to mirror his relationship with his people and his relationship with himself in the context of the Trinity. And it's the marriage relationship. And it's supposed to give life. It's supposed to be something that a man and a woman can draw life from that's energizing. It's an upper, it's not a downer. It's, it's a place where he can connect and feels full and have a whole life there and feel like uh, if God's anywhere, he's right here. But for so many of our men, they don't feel that way at all. Not men in the culture, but men in the church, men who say they know Christ, men who are in a relationship with Jesus and who have what they would call a Christian marriage. If you said, is this life giving? Most men would say that it's not. And here, here's what we want to do through the study of the material, through the questions that come at the end, uh, we want to put you in a position to be able to discern what God really wants for you and for you to be able to make strategic decisions about how you live, how you think, how you act, how you interact with your wife um, that help revolutionize that relationship so that it is life-giving and so that it's energizing, so that it's something that's fulfilling to you and that glorifies Jesus. And so that's why we're excited about it and that's why we hope that this is a real blessing to you. My name is Matt Williams. Uh, I am on staff here at Grace Church and been here from the very beginning. Easier to keep your job that way, I found. So um, we're going to uh, spend some time together uh, talking about some what we think are significant issues. I got married in uh, May 26, 1990. So yep, I'm coming up on 20 years. Uh, I was a rising senior at Clemson University and I uh, got married the summer after my junior year. My wife had just graduated. We thought, we thought, you know, look how many people get married. How hard can it be? All right, so we're, gonna, we're, we're just going to get married because we know how to do everything, and what we don't know how to do, we'll figure it out. It'll be a piece of cake. And I was married uh, 30 minutes uh, in the parking lot, leaving to go to my honeymoon, and uh, we were in a small conflict about how to pull out onto the road into the traffic and get out of here. She was like, well, maybe we should stay and hang out with people longer. I was like, no, we got stuff to do. Time for a honeymoon. Let's go. Right? So, I mean, I was, okay, so that, and I realized by the time we got from the honeymoon, I'm probably not going to be great at this. I'm going to need some help. And I ran into a guy who worked with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes named Foad Ferris, who had a reputation for being a godly man and a great husband, and he had a great wife, and they looked happy together. And so I went to him, and I said, um, uh, I don't really know you. I said, but I, I got a feeling, I've only been married a couple weeks here, I got a feeling I'm not going to be great at this. It feels like playing rugby, which I've only seen on TV. And I don't really know the rules, and I'm not exactly sure of the goal, but it looks like a fun sport, and it looks like you could just figure it out, but I can't. And he said, well, tell me about how it's going. And here, here's the reality. I didn't have words to explain what I was thinking, what I was processing, and what we were experiencing. It wasn't all bad. It wasn't terrible. But I, I, didn't, I didn't even have words to say, well, it's this or it's that, or this is where I'm struggling, or this is where she's struggling. We didn't have a language, and when you don't have, and sociologists will say, when you don't have a language, your ability to think is inhibited. 
And when you uh, don't have a language and your abilities to think is inhibited, well, then your ability to act and make decisions is also limited. And so God brought a man into my life to be able to help me through a very challenging time. But here's what we're passionate about, is equipping men through giving them a language, principles, vision, even applications of what it means to, to be a man. But in this particular case, with this series, to be a man as he moves towards his wife and learns what it means to be the kind of man that God wants him to be. And so we want to give language, we want to give um, direction, and we want to give principles, and we want to create the opportunity to think. Because when you have language, you can think, you can talk to other men, you can talk to your wife, you can have some movement then. And so that's what's really, really important to us, okay? So here's what we saw and have been seeing. 15 years of doing church ministry. A couple comes in, and their marriage is in crisis. And so you're trying as a counselor, as a pastor, to try to figure out what's going on, but they don't care about you figuring out what's going on. They want you to put the pieces back together. But before you can do that, you got to figure out what's going on. And you're trying to think through this, help them. And here's what you're really thinking when it's all said and done at the end of the day, you're driving home. Here's what you're thinking. You're thinking, if we could just wind the clock backwards 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and we could get to this couple after they've been married six months or a year or even five years, we could... We could help them. And so that became something we would talk about. Gosh, if we could just wind the clock back. We help. And then, then the question became, well, if we did wind the clock back, what will we say? Because the reality is, in every church, we can do that. We can wind the clock back. Now, not for this couple who's been married 30 years and they're in a crisis of whatever kind, but for the young couple who's been married three years, the clock is already wound back. So what do we have to say? So that became the impetus for, let's create some language that can help men begin to think and talk, and discuss, and be able to believe some things, make some decisions, and, and create some movement. So uh, that's, that's where we are. Let, let me show you. Let's start with the very first man, this common history, Genesis 2. Let's read together. Let's talk. Let's think. Here we go. Verse 15. The woman has not been created yet. God has created the man. And this is what he said. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and to watch over it. So he's got some responsibility, and he's got some work to do. And what's critical here is woman has not been created yet. So he's going to tend it, to watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden. Verse 17, except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper who is suitable for him. So we can see clearly she's not been created yet. He's been given the responsibility to care for, to tend to this um, environment that he's put in charge of. And he's been given some direction. He's been given some freedom. You go do this. He's been given some limitations. Don't do that. He's been given some consequences to manage about what will happen if he does do this. Okay? So he's been given some direction. He's been given some freedom. He's been given some restrictions. So, and that's what we see here is that there is no helper, not a great word translation for us. We, sometimes we translate it compliment, that she has compared this person who is not there for him. When you, when you look at the animals, there's no one that is closely aligned with him. When she will be created, she'll be a person that compared to the animals, she's just like him. But if you move the animals out of the way, compared to the two of them, when you compare them, um, they're exactly the opposite. And what what the word is there will mean is one who comes alongside, who gives strength. 
is that God is referred to one throughout the scriptures as one who comes alongside to give strength. And so she's one who gives strength. So that's a better, we'll get into it more later, but that's a better framework for helper. He's created first. He's managing things. She's not there yet. He's bearing weight, responsibility, authority, delegated authority. We're going to see that God's going to create the woman in the next paragraph or so. And he will see her and he will say, she is now, look at that, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, is what what it'll say in Genesis. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, which is a Hebrew phrase that means kinsman. She is, she is my closest living relative, so much so that he'll leave father and mother and, and, and create a new relationship with her. All right, so, so God's going to create the woman. So that's what he does. We have man with a responsibility, then we have a woman created, closest living relative. Now, Genesis 3, verse 1. Here's where the wheels come off. And what we're going to do is we're going to explain through the first man um, the situation in which we live, the life that we're experiencing here. Verse, verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. Some of us don't come from much of a church background. Some of us do. We'll find out by the time we get to the book of Revelation that the serpent of old is Satan. So he is manifested here in this way. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees of the garden? Is that what God said? Um, And she's aware of this teaching, though it was given before she was ever created. She's obviously gotten it from the man. Did God say this? She says, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit of the tree from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it, and if you do, you will die. Now, is that a true statement? No, that's not a true statement. He said, don't eat it, but he didn't say, don't touch it. Now, we don't know if, if Adam added that to you. He said, look, I can't trust her. Turn her loose. You know, she's over there making decisions on her own. I'll just... He said, don't eat it. But when he said, look, he said, don't eat it and don't even touch it. So maybe he added the rule or maybe she's thinking, you know, it's better if I don't touch it. Or maybe she exaggerated. So he said, don't eat it, don't touch it. But he didn't say that. And the problem is now she's adding to what God has said. Either he's added or she has added. And now she's vulnerable because this is not clearly not what God has said. I mean, it may be fine to touch it. It may be great for playing baseball. We don't really know. You must not eat it or touch it. If you do, you will die. Here's where Satan has now has a foothold. Verse 4, you won't die. You will not die. He's contradicting uh, what God has said. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Is this true? It's somewhat true. It's not true in the sense that she wants it to be true, that I'm going to eat and everything's going to be great. That's how Satan's presenting it. But it is true in the sense that she will have more knowledge about evil than she has right now. So that part is true. So now this is um, heyday for Satan. And so the, the half-truth is worse than the full truth, okay? Because it's, it's all mixed up and harder to discern. So she's being drawn into this. And what's the core of his argument? The core of his argument is things could be better for you. God's intentions towards you aren't great. You could do better. God's keeping something good from you. It's the same feelings that we get all the time when we face temptation. Is that maybe I'm getting the shaft. Maybe I'm missing out. Maybe I want this. Maybe God doesn't want me to have it. Maybe I could do better. It appeals to my selfishness. It appeals to my pride. Verse 6, she is deceived and bought into the argument. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, that its fruit looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of it. She took some of the fruit and she ate it. So she is deceived and she makes this decision. Now, when we look at it and we say, oh my goodness, 
Before she's ever created, God spoke to the man, gave him some responsibility. Then he creates the woman. He communicates to the woman. The man is out working. He's got a lot to do. Um, boss said, you got to go out of town for the weekend. So he's gone all weekend. He's in Savannah. He's got a lot of work to do. So, and she's here alone. And so um, he just needles in on her while the man is away. And that is the story that we would love to hear, isn't it? I mean, you can't, can't trust a woman when you're out of town, Right? Who knows what's going to happen? But look what the next phrase. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. He's standing right there with her. And so the difference is, is that she's deceived in her thinking, and that's why she moves into sin. He is not deceived. He's clearly aware, and we learn from the book of Romans, Paul will tell us that he's responsible because he's not deceived. He's not deceived in this moment. He willfully disobeys. He makes a decision against what he knows God wants. And so it raises all kinds of questions about what's going on in his soul. If he's sitting back watching this exchange, he's listening, thinking, this isn't good. She's going to die. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe she will. Maybe she won't. Who knows what's going to happen? Maybe God will give me a better one if she dies. I mean, we don't know. I mean, it raises all kinds of questions about what's going on. Here's what we would say. Here's the idea we want to develop. Is that there's something unique to his soul that is passive. That in the critical moment, just pulls back. Just lays down. That steps away. That is passive. We'll, we'll, we'll unpack it further. But here, here's the idea, is that when, when we need a voice, his is silent. When we need someone to move, he is frozen. And whether it's his selfishness, his prideful spirit, his fear, whatever it is, all we know is, is in a moment when we need to hear something, we need to see something, we need to feel something, anything, we have nothing coming from him. And we don't know what he's thinking about her living, her dying, what kind of experiments going on in his mind. But we just know that we need to hear something and there's nothing there. Verse 7. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. See, they had been in a place of purity where they were completely vulnerable, but in that vulnerability felt no weakness in that vulnerability. They felt no shame. They felt safe. But now their eyes were open, so now they do see the opportunity for evil in front of them. Suddenly they felt their shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. So what have they done? They were together and exposed to each other, but now they're covering, so now they're separate from each other. So notice the shame that's been introduced to this relationship, the vulnerability that's now been realized in this relationship, has now caused them to pull apart from each other, to pull away from each other. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking in the garden. So they hid from the Lord among the trees. Verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, because I heard you walking in the garden. So I hid because I was afraid and I was naked. So here, here are the consequences of this sin. It has caused them to hide from each other. There is now division between them. They were one. 
And they were naked and they were not ashamed. He created her, leave his father and mother, cleave, become one. And they were together and they were naked. They were not ashamed. Now there's, there's division between them and they're pulled apart like this. They're hiding from each other. Now, not only is the horizontal relationship between them affected by this action, but now they're also hiding from God. And so he called to them, where are you? He goes, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. So now he's a hider. He's a hider. He's someone that not only when his voice needs to be heard, when his presence needs to be felt, not only will he not show up then, but when someone calls for him, he won't come. He's a hider. He'll hide from her. He'll hide from God. It's his passivity that is becoming full-blown. And notice, when the wheels come off, when the wheels come off of this wagon, who God asked for? Hey, where's the man and the woman? No. Where's the man? He goes, man, I'm calling for you. You're the one who's been here from the beginning. You're the one who was created first. You had responsibility before she was ever created. You had information before she was ever created. You had authority before she was ever created. You were here. I gave you direction and responsibility and authority before she was ever created. Where is the man? But he is now a hider. These are the consequences of what we call the fall. The fall of mankind into sin. This is the fall. This is the story of the fall. And these are some of the consequences that are far-reaching. Verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? He's given him an opportunity to what? To have a voice, to step forward. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, yes, I blew it. I've been looking for you. I made a huge mistake. And we've got to talk about it. Here's what he says. The man replied, this is, a, this, is, this, is, see, this is our common experience. You ready? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me. Right? It's the woman. Oh, man, you should have been here. It's the woman that you gave me. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. He goes, ah, God, you wouldn't believe it. It was crazy. And I don't want to throw anybody under the bus here. But... That woman, she's crazy. She's talking to snakes. It got, I mean, I couldn't keep up. And maybe, you know, maybe he was too much for her. And I I don't want to throw anything back on you, God. But I mean, you are the one who gave her to me. So maybe it's both of y'all. I mean, that's the implication here. It's the woman that you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. You know, I hate to bring this out, God, but I mean, as it turns out, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm a victim. Okay? This is the language of passivity and hiding. This is the way that men naturally think as as being a child of Adam, born as a product of the fall. Adam is a sinner because he sins. Okay? We sin because we are sinners, because we are born this way. We are born with his product in us, with his DNA inside of us. His spiritual DNA is my spiritual DNA. This is a default for me. This is a natural step for me. This makes sense to me in the moment. I can mock it, but in a moment, this is what I will move towards. This is how I think 
naturally, as do all men in some form or fashion. So when we use this kind of language, I'll give you some examples. When we say, I don't know what, I mean, my wife's bitter. She's a bitter, angry person. What are you going to do? My wife and kids, they argue. My wife rejects me for sex. She spends all this money. She spends too much money. I mean, she's so competent. She handles this and she handles this. She just, she's good at everything she does. I mean, I'm so, I'd get involved in that, but I'm so tired from work. I'm worn out. I mean, this is this. My bosses, I just can't. I mean, things are not great with us, but I mean, I don't know why. What am I going to do about that? She's so critical. You know how she can get so needy? My wife can be so needy. And I'm busy, and I need a break. All of that. Is, is all of that true at any given moment? Sure it is. All that can be true of any of us on any day. All that can be true of any woman on any day. It's not about whether that's true or not, whether those statements have an, a ring of truth to them. The reality is that those are not excuses for why we don't move, for why we remain passive during the most important parts of life. And here's, here's, here's what's great and a great hope for us, is that most of us do not realize that this is how we're wired up and that this is what we're doing. Most of us don't have a language for it. We don't have clear principles around it. We don't see it. We don't know it. We're functioning out of instinct rather than what Robert Lewis calls a redeemed masculinity with a vision for how Jesus would have us live as a man. We were put here to lead ourselves, to lead our wives, to lead our families. And many times we are watching our wives and our families move down a path that's not healthy and our voices are silent. Our presence is not felt. There's no movement on our part. So, verse 13. The Lord asked the woman, what have you done? She says, the servant deceived me. Then I ate. So she passes the buck too. Verse 14. Then the Lord God said to the servant, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. So you're like, what was he like before? Another sermon for another day. Verse 15. I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike you on your head. You, you will strike him on his heel. And so this is called the first gospel by theologians. It's, the, it's this opportunity, this allusion to the future of a time when Jesus will be the seed. Paul will say she is the, Jesus is the seed and the offspring of this woman who will crush the head of Satan and bring redemption and reconciliation for all mankind, for those who will believe, put their faith in Jesus. So it's a picture of the gospel, a first gospel that is given to us. All right, so there's some hope that even though we have this fall, the woman is walking in the wake of that. The man is walking in the wake of this fall. There is an opportunity for redemption that is coming towards us that relates to masculinity and femininity and ultimately our salvation. Verse 16, then the woman said to the woman, he said, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. The, the, the judgments are talionic. In other words, they have an irony to them. That The judgments many times relate to the sin that is committed. So her sin was moving outside the authority that she was given with her husband, moving outside the authority that was given from God. She moves outside of that, and he says this. Part of this is going to be, you're, you're put here to nurture. You're put here to bring forth life. And to release all that, he goes, and part of this is going to be painful for you to experience what I've created you to do. And the other part of it is, 
is that you moved outside of that authority, so now you're going to have to be under that authority. But that authority is going to be brutal. And you're going to desire, you're going to desire to control, and you're going to have a desire for autonomy, and you're going to have a desire to lead and to usurp the authority of the man in your home. Um, but that's, that's not how it's going to go. And so that's part of the judgment that, that falls on her. And so he says this, but he will rule over you. That is not a redeemed kind of masculinity. That is an abuse. It's the kind of abuse that you see all over the world. I've been on five or six continents. Everywhere you go, you see women being abused by men. Why? Because they can. And I'm reading a story yesterday of a woman who, her husband, Afghanistan, didn't like what she was doing, didn't like her thoughts about this, didn't like some of her actions. He takes her up in the mountains, cuts off her ears, cuts off her nose, leaves her to die. And so now she didn't die, so she's deformed. And everybody's good with this. It's okay. This is the world that we live in. This is part of the judgment that's put on us for sin. And so he says, you're going to have a desire because of the authority that you moved outside of. That authority is going to rule over you, but it's going to be abusive because of the sinfulness of mankind. Verse 17. And to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. Listen to this next phrase. All of your life will be a struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns, this ground. It will grow thorns and thistles for you. Though you will eat of its grains, but it's going to come by the sweat of your brow that you will eat food until you return to the ground. He says, you've been put in an environment that was working with you and for you. He said, now the ground will be cursed because of you. And notice how it relates to who he is. You were passive. You were silent. You didn't move. So now I put you in an environment where you have to move. Things will not just naturally work for you. You're going to have to work to make a living. You're going to have to work hard because the ground's not going to work in your favor. And so you've been in, a, you've been in an environment that's been passive and worked for you, but you were passive, so now it's going to be hostile towards you. So this is why uh, at the end of a long week you think, this has been very hard. Why don't business deals just come together? Why aren't bosses easy to please? Why don't the people who work for us just do what they're told? On this day, why do they think? Just do what you're told. On this day, why don't they think and do the right thing? These are the questions that we ask because this is part of our experience now. Look at the, um, this chart we have in your notes, this core matrix. This summarizes what we've been talking about. Is that the core sin for the man is that he is passive, that he is pulled back, that he is reserved, that he is silent. This explains the world that we live in. For the woman, it's her core sin is autonomy, self-law, self-rulership. That I will, I, I will decide what's best and I will make that decision, regardless of the consequences. Core responsibility for him was to lead before the fall and after the fall. We'll see some New Testament examples. Was for him to lead. Um, core responsibility for her is to partner with him in his leadership. She plays a huge role of adding strength to what's going on in this couple, in this family, in this life. And so she's a partner to that, which involves so many active responsibilities, not passive responsibilities on her part. Right? And so the deal is, 10 years ago, we have some material that we took from Fellowship Bible Church Little Rock about authentic manhood. And so we thought, we're going to take this, we're going to adapt it for our church, we're going to use it here. But I was listening to the original material during the summer. We're going to teach it the fall. I was um, corresponding with some of the pastors in Little Rock and talking about it, and working through the material myself. 
And so I'm traveling some and going to see my parents in the lower part of the state, and I'm listening to CDs, and I'm filling in the notes, and I'm thinking, and, and all the lights are coming on, and I'm seeing things in my life. And so I realized that the, the streaks, and I don't think anybody around me would say, Matt's a passive man. Look how, look how laid back. Look how they would have been thinking in terms of personality, not spiritual DNA. But, there, but I began to see all these areas where I was passive and where I was just back away because it wasn't comfortable for me. So I made a decision. Not going to do that anymore. Not going to be passive. Okay, dangerous, right? You can, you can already feel it. So I'm at home the next week, and I hear my oldest get into a conflict with my wife. It's not huge, but it was just something. And for the first time, I think I heard it. I could hear it. And it didn't feel like something good in my home. So I jumped in. I was like, all right, here we go. Shoom, back away. A is B, B is C, A is C. A is B, B is C, A is C. All right, good. All right, we're done here. Good, good. I mean, smoke coming out. I'm like, yes. That was awesome. That was awesome. And then I look at them, and I, and I realize, not good. All I've done is kind of glossed over the situation and superficially jumped to a conclusion and solved the problem that really wasn't even the problem of what they were dealing with. I actually wasn't clear on what they were actually talking about. I only heard like this much, and I solved a problem that they aren't actually having. And so they're both walking away going, good night, what happened? Let's talk about this again when bazooka guy's not around. So a little bit later, my wife, trying to be honoring and kind and gentle, comes to me and she said, hey, Close the door. It's just us in the bedroom. What, what was that a little while ago? I'm like, I've been passive, no longer passive. <laughs> Handling it. She goes, well, you solved the problem that we're not having. That's actually, you heard this, but that's not actually what we're talking about. That was just this little thing. It's really this. And now she's confused and I'm confused. And, and she said, here's the thing. She said, I, I got this. You don't, need to, you don't need to be involved in this. I got this. I, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but I got this. She was, she was right about how I handled it. And I said, listen. I said, I, I get it now. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. I said, but let's, let me, let's get this out on the table. Let's get this right. I said, um, I have been negligent in some areas of our home, and I'm sure I will be till the day I die. But for what I can see, I'm going to start moving. And let me, let me be clear with you about this. I'm fully acknowledging to you that I just screwed that up. That I just made a huge mistake and I was a fool because I spoke before I listened. I don't know what I'm doing and this is all new to me. I got you. And I said, but here's the thing. Me not being involved is no longer an option. And I'm telling you on the front end, I don't know what I'm doing. I hadn't seen it modeled I hadn't had it lived out in front of me, but me not, but I'm going to, we're going to get there, but me not being involved is not an option. And I'm not saying I'm the new micromanager who's going to rule over. I'm just saying there's some areas that I'm not been involved that our family needs me, and I'm going to figure out a way to be what I need to be. So I'm telling you that I'm wrong, and I'm telling you that I'm sorry, but I'm telling you that I'm coming at it again, and I'm going to get it right. But me not being involved is not an option anymore. And it was a turning point. At least we had a dialogue for my craziness now. For all the things that I was not equipped to do. 
for all the things that I felt inadequate about, at least we, we knew that I was going to try to be involved. Because here's what happens. Here's what it looks like. And I've done this a number of times, a number of places, and it is amazing the response. What happens in our homes is a man is either too busy, too tired, um, feels inadequate, whatever, but he is, he's supposed to be in this role in the front. But, it, but something about this doesn't feel right. Or he's lazy, or he's tired, or he's um, thinking about something else, or he feels inadequate. And so he just gradually takes a small step back. Well, according, which fits what we've just been reading, right? So when he does this, there's now what? There's this void in the front. And according to what we've just been reading, which will match our experiences in, in dramatic ways, is a woman will, because of self-law, self-direction, and legitimate need for a home to be led, she sees the void. You take the void that's legitimate in her home, and her own desire, part of this judgment, is that you will rule yourself and you will desire his position. What will she do? Small step forward. Someone's got to handle it. Then he sees her move forward. Whew, thank goodness somebody's got it. She take another step back. When she sees him take another step back, she's like, that's what I thought. Another dramatic step forward. And a dance commences where he's constantly stepping backwards. And she's constantly filling the void in legitimate ways and illegitimate ways. For, Ill, for legitimate reasons and illegitimate reasons. Let's put it that way. And he's constantly stepping back. And then here's what happens. It gets to a point where he's so far back and she's so far forward that the roles are reversed in this relationship. And he's not leading and she's not partnering. She's leading. He's kind of partnering, pushing stuff off on her to handle. And a, and a phone call comes from the school. We need to meet with one of the parents for your child to talk about something that happened that's been going on for the last couple of weeks at school. And, and, she, and the only time the teacher can meet is Thursday at three. And he's like, good night, this is a mess. She's like, and I have to be out of town for, I got this thing playing, so I've got to be out of town. And, and so what are we going to do? He's like, well, I guess I'll go and I'll go talk to the teacher on Hamlet. And she says, absolutely not. You know why not? Because he's become irrelevant. Do you think that the reason that all of our TV shows and commercials make fun of men is because people just conjured that idea? Or do you think that TV and art actually reflect what we see in reality? Is that men are irrelevant because they're not involved. And so he's been doing this so long, he's been doing this so long, he's been doing this so long, she's been doing this so long that she thinks she's the only one who can go talk to a teacher about what's going on with our, with our child. He's not adequate to go down and meet with this company to settle this problem that we have with this bill, this mortgage crisis that we're having. He's not adequate to handle paying the bills. He's not adequate to go negotiate this. He's not adequate to go solve this problem for our family because he's been in the back so long. She's the only one who's adequate enough to handle that because he's been what? He's been passive. She's been fulfilling the role. And now the reality is what? She actually is more competent than he is. She actually is. And so she doesn't trust him. He's irrelevant to anything that's critical, anything that's important. 
He's become irrelevant because of his passivity, and she's had to take a more leadership role, more controlling. And so now he says, I mean, I can't do anything with her because she's so locked into all that. If I even try to get involved, she's pushing me away. Right. You would too. If you felt like it all hinged on you, you had to make all the decisions, you, you were the one who had to handle everything that was in a crisis, you wouldn't want someone who was irrelevant, who was incompetent. And this goes on in our homes and in our marriages. And it is the opposite of what God intended. God didn't intend for anybody to be irrelevant. He doesn't intend to play it out in the opposite where a man is in the forefront and she's way back there irrelevant and incompetent, can't do anything. That is not what partnership is all about. It's not what leadership's all about. All right, so that's the, that's the picture that we have in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and it's the picture we have in our culture and in our churches. And the consequences of this is, this lived out over a couple decades creates a man who is embittered towards his wife. He can't, there's a part of him that hates her. He hates the fact that she looks down on him because she doesn't think he can handle anything. And there's a part of him that he knows there's some nobility in him where he knows he's supposed to be able to handle things for the family, but he feels inadequate for that. He's fearful for that. He's timid. And what he's become, he's become a lazy man who's now enjoying the fact that he can just run the remote. And he's become content and happy with that on the surface. But if you dig down, there's a bitterness deep in his soul about that. And for her, this lived out over time, she begins to despise him. Because you know what happens when she, she thinks she wants to be here? Until after a couple of decades, she's exhausted from being here. Because this is not the makeup that she was given. So even though she has some great leadership skills, and she has all these talents and all these abilities, out in the front, the wear and tear of being in the front is not what she was created to do. And she is now angry about that because she's exhausted. And every time for our children in this setting, every time I illustrate this on a stage, a couple different places where we've talked about this, I am flooded with college students after the service who were saying, you just described my home. You just answered so many questions about why I can't move in life and what the deal was with my parents in my home. You just answered so many questions for me. All right, so here's where we're going. The idea of oneness. This is going to be our next session where we talk about oneness is the core issue of marriage. And we're going to talk about it. Uniqueness. We're going to talk about some of the differences that we have that are ordained by God, that are part of our experience, and how do we leverage those. Oneness, uniqueness, redemption, that there's a brokenness from the fall that affects all of us. And um, how do we find redemption and bring healing to our families and to our marriages, to our own souls? Um, intimacy. Oneness, uniqueness, redemption, intimacy. What is it? Is it sex? Is it more than sex? How does it relate to sex? Because I know what you're thinking about sex. I got you, right? And then adventure. Where are we going? Um, what is the direction that a man should carve out? How does a woman feel a part of that? How do we connect to all that? I bought a house a couple years ago, and I spent a year exploring that house and fixing problems with that house. And every time I turned around, there was something broken, or there was a snake or a big spider or some kind of little critter that I'd never seen before. And every day I'd have to go fix something on this house, and I would think, what will it be today? And I hate snakes. And I killed I've killed a total of like 13 of them now. And I hate that. And I would go under that house and think, okay, what kind is it today? What's it going to be now? 
And there's some courage that it takes when we start talking about these issues and we start pulling the curtain back and we feel exposed. And it's going to take some courage to go look at some snakes, some spiders, to be able to see what's broken and be willing to take on the challenge of what it means to address some of these things. But that's who we are. That's what we were created to do. Let's pray.